pleased to welcome to the show now my usual Monday guest, that is Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks as always for the time. Now, I wanted to start here with the conversation that has been getting quite a bit of attention over the past week, and that's this idea of interprovincial travel and the uh, province potentially putting a ban on that. Premier John Horgan said last week that he is getting legal advice to determine whether an interprovincial travel ban would be doable or even constitutional as a way to protect the province while the number of COVID cases soars in other parts of the country. Now, the timing of this, in my opinion, is is rather dumb. I think it's something that should have been discussed maybe like 10 months ago, but I won't get into that part of it. Is this idea of banning people from traveling across provincial borders, is that something that you believe would even be doable? It is doable, but it would require buy-in from the Northwest Territory, Yukon, and Alberta in order to make it feasible. Because while we could ban people from coming in, um, the reality is is that's only going to lead to chaos and confusion and provincial roadblocks unless the other province and territories kind of are buying into this as well and agreeing to this and agreeing to help with the enforcement of it. Now, one of the things that is also being talked about here is, is this idea of an interprovincial travel ban constitutional? I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Is this something that, um, you know, would be allowed to be put in place, even if it was uh, something that, you know, was seen as a good idea? Under the Charter, people in Canada have the right to move freely between the provinces to take up residence and to take on work in any other province or territory without the government banning or prohibiting that. So an interprovincial travel ban would be something that would violate those constitutional rights. The question is always whether or not that violation is justified. Um, a lot of people in Canada don't understand this, but the government actually has the right to violate all of your rights as long as they can justify that the violation is is appropriate in the circumstances. And, and the pandemic is itself a circumstance that I think would likely lead to justification of the ban. The difficulty that the government would have in this argument that I don't think they had with their Atlantic bubble um, is that it is, as you pointed out, coming very, very late in the pandemic. Pandemic. And why now, especially when we see in British Columbia cases are starting to drop again, our curve is bending again, why now is the travel ban necessary and not in the summer, not in end of October, November when we saw cases spiking, why is it coming at a time where it appears to be that the actions we're taking at this point in time are working? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and uh, the timing of it is something that does bother me because I just it feels too little too late to even be considering it at this point in time. But uh, I wanted to go back to that point you mentioned that uh, the government is actually allowed to break the charter if, if it's deemed for a, a reason that's justifiable. Has there been a lot of instances where that has happened? You mentioned that no one really seems to know this, so I imagine it's not something that we've really seen much of before in history. We actually see a lot of it. Roadside breathalyzer testing violates the charter, but they found that those violations are justified. Um, uh, Stopping people randomly at roadblocks, uh, for example, is a violation of the charter, which the courts have found is justified under Section 1. These types of justifications happen all the time in Canadian law. It's just that we don't think about it because a lot of the things that are actually justified violations of our rights have become normal aspects of our daily living.
Now, when you're going to kind of go through and, and, and uh, you know, put some of those protocols in place, you mentioned something like a breathalyzer test that is unconstitutional, yet the government has deemed that uh, and the court system has deemed that it's allowable based on the fact that it, you know, kind of safety, I guess, outweighs um, the, the violation that is occurring. Is there a long process, though, to actually implement something like that? I imagine it's not something that you can just say, oh, this is a good idea, therefore we can go ahead with it. I imagine there's some channels that these kinds of things would have to go through before they could be put into place. In ordinary circumstances, there are channels. Legislation has to be passed. It has to be debated. It often gets rewritten. There's criticism of the legislation. Sometimes experts on the legislation are called to testify about the impact it might have on charter rights. But the government very early on in this pandemic passed legislation that effectively allows them to write any law they want now, skip the process of debating it in the legislature, and just put it into force and effect. Because we're in a state of emergency, they get to skip some of those procedural steps that we would otherwise see. So in the circumstances of this pandemic, to put in a travel ban would really only require just an order um, made uh, made by um, the powers that be to, to put that in place without any debate or without any argument, and then it would be up to somebody affected by the travel ban to bring a challenge in court to try and argue that it wasn't justified. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point there, Kyla. I guess just uh, on that last part that you mentioned, you know, um, is this something that would even be enforceable? I believe you and I have actually had this conversation probably back last summer when this was a, a real hot topic, when we were concerned about, uh, you know, Alberta license plates and people were getting, getting uh, nasty messages left on their windshields or windshields even broken in some cases as a result of having those out-of-province license plates. Um, but, uh, yeah, is this something that you think would even be enforceable if the province were to go ahead and, and put this interprovincial travel ban in place? I imagine it's something that would be very, very difficult for law enforcement to actually uh, make sure is being followed. It would be difficult for law enforcement, especially because it appears, based on the discussion so far, that it wouldn't ban travel altogether. It would only ban non-essential travel. And the definition of essential travel or essential worker in British Columbia is extremely broad. It includes most occupations that you can possibly imagine. And so all you have to do is say that you're traveling to British Columbia for one of those many, 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 many reasons you're allowed to come for, um, and then stay longer um, because once you're here there's nothing that forces you to go back home and and there's no monitoring that we're doing in, in British Columbia or that would likely be possible to make sure that people who are coming here for essential reasons leave as soon as that essential purpose is complete. It's kind of exactly what I anticipated you would say, but uh, yeah, interesting stuff. It'll be interesting to see if there is any movement. I don't think there will be, but uh, I think the Premier just probably trying to have a little bit of a um, you know, talking point there, make sure that people are aware that he is um, you know, kind of listening to the concerns around interprovincial travel and, and not taking them lightly, um, but I don't see anything moving here on this, on this particular front. Uh, here with Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Now, I did want to change topics here a little bit um, and get into the practice here of, of birth alerts. So for those who who don't know what a birth alert is. It's when a social worker feels an expectant parent may put their newborn at risk. They can then issue a birth alert, flagging the expectant parent to hospital staff without their consent and directing them to notify social workers as soon as that baby is born. Now, the province here in BC halted this practice, it says, as of September of 2019. Um, but an interesting article was put out last week here by the Aboriginal People's Television Network on the practice, and it states months before BC officially ended the controversial practice of 
birth alerts. Government lawyers advised the Ministry of Children and Family Development that the practice was illegal and unconstitutional and posed a litigation risk. Uh, just for some interesting stats here, B.C. birth alerts result in child apprehension or the removal of a newborn from their mothers about 28% of the time. And uh, the piece also notes that there were at least 444 birth alerts in B.C. between January 1st, 2018 and the end of August 2019. Indigenous people disproportionately impacted by those alerts. Um, Toronto Star kind of did a little piece on this as well, speaking with a Vancouver-based lawyer who focuses on class actions, who says there is potential for a class action lawsuit against the province as a result. Now, obviously we know that the, the practice of birth alerts kind of tailing into our previous conversation, unconstitutional. The province taking steps to, to end this, uh, as I mentioned, in 2019, saying it has officially ended the practice of birth alerts. But this clearly had an impact on hundreds, if not thousands, of people in this province. I imagine that there is a real justification here, and you can probably fill me in on, on you know what you think about the justification around a class action. Um, but I think there is a real possibility we see some movement here on something like this. Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, this is a, a practice that evidence has shown disproportionately affected Indigenous mothers and people of colour. Um, it, it was disproportionately used to achieve what we've also seen from recent reports and, and picking up on a conversation we had a couple weeks ago um, in, in the systemic discrimination in healthcare systems against Indigenous people. I mean, we recently saw this report being released that mm -hmm. showed that Indigenous people in British Columbia Columbia are not having the same access to health care. And when you go to the hospital and you have a child, it is supposed to be a, you know, a wonderful point in your life. It's supposed to be the happiest day of your life to, you know, have your child and, and, and do all of that. And for Indigenous women going to hospital and giving birth, it was becoming a point of, of fear because they didn't know whether their child was going to be taken away from them because somebody was going to interpret the way that they were acting or the conditions that they showed up in as being dangerous to the child, notwithstanding the fact that, of course, when you're in labor and you're in pain and you're being given medication for that, you can act a lot like you would act if you were intoxicated or on drugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had a very uh, prominent case in relation to this not too long ago in relation to baby H. I'll probably get into that once we're, we're finished our conversation and just remind people of what that was all about. But uh, yeah, it's a horrific practice and, and one that I am sure has caused a real amount of emotional pain and stress for a lot of families. Now, class action lawsuits, of course, take a long time to really get into the system and then get moving and you need a lot of uh, you know people on board to come and sign on. Uh, I imagine the interest will be here, but uh, you know, this kind of topic and discussion being pretty pretty new it feels like here uh, i imagine this if there was to be a class action lawsuit against the province in relation to birth alerts we're talking about something that might be uh you know kind of years down the road it might take years um, in relation to this to get the class action before a judge and heard. My hope, although, you know, I'm not holding my breath, my hope is that if there is a class action, that the province would move quickly to settle it. Now mm -hmm. that they've ended this practice, um, they've, they've obviously recognized that it was unconstitutional and they never should have been doing it. My hope is that they would move quickly to provide compensation to the people who are affected by this, repair the damage that they did to the extent they can at this point and discontinue ever even considering an idea like this in the future. 
Well, I, I know this is a, an ongoing conversation across the country. A lot of provinces are saying that they have ended this practice. A lot of other provinces continuing to kind of examine and think about that. I know the Maritimes, that's still technically uh, a practice that is used out there, but they're kind of reviewing that. I believe Quebec is the only one, the only province that hasn't really even talked about potentially reviewing this practice at this point in time. But this would probably have some wide-reaching impacts outside of BC as well if something were to move forward. It does, and and that's a risk that BC would take if the class action did move forward before a judge and and evidence came out at trial. Is they could end up creating a precedent that costs other provinces a lot of money as well. Whereas if they settle out of court, you don't have the precedent. All you have is an indication of a settlement without any necessarily public reasons why it was settled or why it was settled for the amount that it was. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm curious to see what happens here. I think uh, you know, like I said, there's a lot of families that have been uh, really had their lives up uprooted as a result of this emotional damage is something that's really hard to quantify but i imagine it's you know we're talking a, a lot of a lot of uh, monetary value in, in in that so uh, we'll see what happens i think there's a real good case if a class action were to move forward as you have mentioned as well um and i think it would probably be good for those families to seek some some sort of legal action as a result of this terrible practice that has been in place for far too long and thankfully it's done now um but you know we're, we're still talking pretty recent history here with uh, just 2019 being the last time this happened Kyla, thank you so much for the time as always. Really appreciate this. Um, Have yourself a wonderful rest of your Monday, and and we'll catch up soon. Thanks for having me. All right. That's Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee.